0: Thank you, worship team. I think it is important that we remember uh, the worship isn't uh, anything that's confined to a Sunday morning or anything that's confined to a specific mode. This is essentially the question that the woman at the well has for Jesus. She says, well, our fathers say that we should worship Jesus here, but you say that we should worship down in Jerusalem. And he said, Tell you the truth, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers of God will worship Him in spirit and in truth, and the Lord is seeking such people to worship Him. So every day, throughout your life, whatever's going on, that is the moment of worship for you um, and provides an opportunity for you to bring glory to the Lord. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2 as we resume our study there. And I'll read verses... 1 through 9 of Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The word of the Lord. And let us pray. Father, there is so much going on uh, in our lives, in the life of our church, so much going on in uh, with many of the families in this church who are uh, having a difficult time either with sickness or with trials of many kinds, uh, both spiritual, physical, health-wise, and we pray that Your Spirit would work through those situations to bring You glory and to sanctify us. But we also ask for Your comfort that You extend to us, that You make available to us through Your Son, Jesus. And I ask for these moments that we would be able to focus on Your Word and set aside the distractions that beg for our attention every moment. And that we'd be able to focus on what Your Word has for us. We'd pay attention to the subtle nuances of Your Word. We wouldn't leave here um, without coming face-to-face with the truth of Your Word and having to change the way we feel, think, or interact with others because of it. I pray for Your help. It's only by Your grace that we will make any progress. So it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. So last week we spent a lot of time talking about the significance... And the meaning, or what it means for the world to come to be subjected to Christ. that's a big term, it's a big idea, and basically it carries this significance for us today that Jesus is King right now. That He is Lord. And that any other claim to authority, any other uh, thing that we would see in our lives that seems significant or powerful is altogether under the authority of Christ as King. We talked about how the text here, what we just read, the world to come being subjected to Jesus. Does that just mean uh, when Jesus returns, he's going to be established as king? That world to come, the new creation, is that what's been subjected to Christ? Or is the text also talking about the world right now, today, has it been subjected? And the answer was basically yes to both. Because as I already quoted before we got into this text, an hour is coming and is now here. This dynamic exists in the New Testament that Jesus and what is happening in Jesus is, if you will, the future invading the present. That the new creation or what God is doing in Jesus has already begun now, even though we don't see it all fully lived out right now. And regardless of how you view that already not yet dynamic, what we rested on is this phrase where he says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Jesus is in charge of everything. Right now, today, for you and me, and for everyone. So we talked also about the why and the how. It's one thing to say, Jesus is in charge, that's that. End of story. The point of the gospel is to show us that it is fitting, it is appropriate that he is put in charge of everything. So the author references a psalm where he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? So he ties Jesus being put in charge of everything to Adam and what God did in creating man. So Jesus came as the second Adam, lived the perfect life that our first father never did and that we never could. And because of his perfect life, living that life in our place he earned the right to be established as the ruler of the world to come and even the ruler of the world today we talked also about the difficulty that we have especially as americans in thinking about what it means to have a king in the everyday and in our interactions with people we don't we don't think that way but we also looked at different ways where jesus being king in a very active and present sense, solves so many of life's problems and life's difficult questions. And it really does. If you let that idea sit and simmer in your mind and you meditate on Him being your King, it does solve so many of life's mysteries and difficulties. And when we ended with this exhortation that regardless of where you are in your life, whatever your testimony is, the call to you is to submit to King Jesus. You may have been a Christian for a long time, but there may be areas of your life that aren't submitted to King Jesus. You may not know if you're truly in Him and it may be ambiguous to you if you're really a Christian. Submit to King Jesus. Do you want that in your heart? That means God is working and drawing you to Himself. And then we ended, because we didn't have time to address this. If you want to chuckle, all of this content was essentially in Him. Last week's sermon, and I had to just cut it out because it was going to be like three hours. So, um, so we ended and and left ourselves with this question or this uh, objection: This world, this is the world under Christ's control and rule and reign. Jesus is in charge. Have you been looking around? Do you see what's going on in the world? This is the world that Jesus is in charge of? So it's a problem. The author grants the objection. We'll spend the most of our time with this phrase at the end of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. So notice we have to be very careful here. He doesn't say it hasn't been subjected to him. He says we don't yet see it subjected to him. This is one of the most difficult issues to talk about as a preacher, a teacher, or a pastor. There are so many difficult things that a lot of people would consider difficult or hard or maybe awkward or insensitive that I don't have any struggle communicating. The biblical definition of God honoring sexuality. I can talk about that. I don't feel awkward doing it. How to untangle election and predestination. I don't mind talking about that. It's not awkward. It's not hard. I can talk about hell and judgment. Even though those are completely socially unacceptable. And it doesn't bother me. It doesn't cause any anxiety or fear that I might turn someone away. But this issue is hard. At, yet, at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. The author is basically granting the objection to those in his audience who see that their life, because of the sufferings that they have experienced and the evil that we see in the world, it doesn't look like Jesus is in charge. And the confidence you should have as a believer is that the Bible is such an honest book that it grants those types of objections. It's not ignorant. It's not lollipops and skipping and unicorns. It's not just prosperity. God created the world. Good. Go do it. It grants that there are legitimate issues and objections that might be raised against the claim that Jesus is in charge of everything. I know that in this room, there are those who have suffered greatly, much more than I have. And so as I try to unpack a biblical doctrine of suffering and how it can be the case that Jesus is in charge of everything with every dark thing we see in this world, I'm doing so with the spirit of humility and I do it in a spirit knowing that there are those who have endured things that I never want to So I come to you only on the authority of God's word. And I appeal to you to accept what he says. I don't come to you as a person who has a long list of resume of suffering. You know, I could name the things that have happened to me or to those I love. And maybe you would believe me a little bit more. And that I'm not just saying this in a vacuum. But that would be to dishonor the word of God. The reason you should believe what I'm about to say and communicate to you is because the word of God says it's the case the most loving thing for me to do for you is to point, to point you to and highlight what the Bible has to say in answer to these hard questions. I will say as, as an aside that this, what, this biblical doctrine of, of suffering and understanding what people call the problem of evil or the problem of suffering I will say that those who have embraced this view, what I'm about to explain, those in my life who, has, who have suffered most, and I do know people who have suffered greatly, they find this to be the most comforting thing in those moments. So let's look at it together. At present, in the end of verse 8, at present we do not yet see Everything in subjection to him. As I said, we'll spend the majority of our time here unpacking the meaning and implications of this phrase. Though we will get to verse 9 as well because the argument continues on and gives us some nuance and some ways to think about suffering in more clear ways. We have to be very careful here, as I've said. We have to hold these two ideas as true. Is everything subjected to Christ? Yes. Does it look that way? No. And that's essentially what this text is saying. When you look at the world, when you take an honest analysis of the world, it doesn't look like Jesus is in charge. At first glance, it may seem that the author doesn't answer the elephant in the room. And that is, why? Why is it the case that even though you, author of Hebrews, are saying that Jesus is in charge, everything has been subjected to him, he left nothing outside of his control, then why, author of Hebrews, does it look like it isn't? So if you're just reading quickly, it may not look like he answers your question. My argument is that this text both acknowledges the objection and gives the answer. This question of the problem of evil or suffering has caused many to abandon the faith. Let's Just be real honest about that. You often hear it this way, how could a loving God allow this? And because of that, because of an experience they've had or an experience a loved one has had, or something that's happened, they say, I can't embrace or love a God who would allow a world like this to exist. That may be some of you in this room today. Maybe you've been on the edge of that very cliff in despair or in total bitterness towards God, ready to cast yourself away from His light and presence because you cannot accept that he can be so loving as he claims. And yet that terrible thing happened to you or someone you loved. Before we get into what the Bible does say and what the Bible doesn't say about this issue, we need to be very honest with what the Bible says about this world. The Bible says that this world is cursed. Subjected to decay and futility. This is from Genesis 3 and Romans 8. We need to be very honest biblically about what this world is. It's not just an independent system that functions and there's people who are good, people who are bad, and we're all living our lives out within this system. The entire creation groans, according to Paul, Romans 8, under the weight of decay and futility because of sin. Because our first father, Adam, rebelled against God. This creature from the dirt decided to defy the holy God. And because of that, he says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. the Bible also says that this whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's in 1 John 5. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So again, the Bible is acknowledging this tension. In certain places it says that even the enemy is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4. He's talking about the unbelievers. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their eyes to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ. So you have this tension that doesn't seem reconcilable, that Jesus is in charge of everything, the world has been subjected to him, yet at the same time, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And the enemy is, in a sense, the God, small g, of this world. The Bible also says this world is passing away along with all its desires. It's from 1 John chapter 2. So how can a world where all of that is true be subjected to Jesus? Before we get to what the answer is, I want to talk a little bit about what the answer is not. First, it's not like yin-yang. If you're familiar with any kind of Eastern philosophy, the idea is that good and evil are equally powerful opposing forces in the world. And that they're vying for control. And you can either align yourself with the dark or align yourself with the light. And it's kind of in question who's going to win, but Jesus will show up one day and tip the scales in favor of the light and good will win out. That is not the biblical answer. That doesn't explain this issue. The Bible's answer is not to say, well, we live in a fallen world. Man has his freedom of self-determination. So God would like to fix it all, but He can't or won't because of how He set things up. That doesn't have any biblical support. And I'm not trying to be mean towards those of you who might believe this, and none of you have come to me and told you that you believe this, so I'm not singling anybody out. Most importantly, that's not comforting at all. Ever talk to someone who's just had a miscarriage? A spouse who's just committed suicide? You really think it's going to help them at all to say to them, well, you know, this is how God set up the world. He would like to prevent it, and He would, but, but he, he just won't. It doesn't help people, and that presents God as puny. We need a great God, because that's the God who is there. And that's the God who can help us deal with life's hard, difficult, sorrowful things. The third thing, the answer is not. The Bible's answer is not to say, well, it's a mystery. We don't really know what's all going on. We don't really know how evil can be and suffering can be in light of Jesus as being the ruler of all things. It's a mystery. It's a cop out. And it does dishonor to the text because God has gone to great lengths to give us clear, specific ideas and truths about what is really going on in the world. So if we just back away, we close our Bibles and say, oh, I can't understand it, it's a mystery, we do dishonor to God. And lastly, the Bible's answer is not to say, well, you must have sinned in some way. Has anyone ever told you that? Get sick, someone in your family gets sick, something terrible happens, and you say, well... If you had only obeyed God in this way or listened to Him in this way, then that wouldn't have happened to you. Remember, the disciples asked Jesus this very question. Hey, Jesus, who sinned? This man or His parents that He should be born blind? And Jesus responds, neither, but so that the Son of Man would be glorified. Both His parents and He sinned. But his blindness is not due to their specific sin. It's for the glory of God. And we'll get into that as well later. People have said to people that I love very much, well, there must be a hole in your umbrella somewhere that God would allow the suffering into your life. You've got to fix your umbrella Isn't that exactly what Job's friends were saying to him? Like, you must have failed in some way, you must have dishonored God in some way that all this would be happening to you. God rejects that idea. And you should too. And speaking of Job, let's transition from what the Bible's answer is not to what the Bible's answer is. And we have this massive book in the Old Testament called Job. And it's interesting, uh, in the circles I run in and have in the past because of my schooling or whatever, uh, people who exercise philosophy or write about this issue usually avoid Job because I think it is such an honest, brutally honest take on this question that it isn't palatable for modern sensibilities. But it's for that very reason that we should go to it and pay attention. So, if you're familiar with the story, Job is righteous. He's the most righteous person in his generation. He has sons and daughters and flocks and herds. He's got everything. And he makes sacrifice after sacrifice, honoring the Lord. Just making sure he'll even offer sacrifices for his children in case they have sinned presumptuously. He's righteous before God and Satan appears before the Lord and says, hey, is it for no reason that he fears you? You basically protect him. You don't let anything terrible happen to, you, to him. If you let me touch him, then he'll curse you to, it, to your face. So God obliges essentially and lets the enemy take away his children, take away his wealth, And later, take away his health. And Job maintains his integrity. And what Job understands, and here's where it gets very difficult, and I'm just asking that you follow along with me and try to embrace this difficult teaching. After all of this happens to Job, and just try to put yourself in his shoes, boils that he's scraping off with Shards of pottery, children killed, all of his wealth taken away, to the point where even his wife says to him, Why don't you just curse God and die? And his response is, The Lord gives. And what? Satan takes away? The marauders take away? Or the wind that caused the house to fall down took away my kids? No. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job understands that even the enemy is under God's control. He sees no evil or failing on God's part. God can use any means that He desires to bring about His plan. And it's not because of any failing on Job's part. The big takeaway is not to make us throw up our hands and say, well, I guess we just can't know what God is up to. The big takeaway for us is what we see in Job 42. If you want to turn there. Job 42, verses 1 through 6. This is after the Lord answers and basically, in summary, says, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The big conclusion is creature, know your place. We're talking about a being who can see all time before Him. All past, present, and future events are perceivable by Him. Imagine what you could do or how powerful you would be if you could just see five seconds into the future. You could rule the world. For God, all future events... Everything, all time, everywhere throughout the universe, every galaxy is perceivable to him as a singular point without any exertion or sweat. So when we come to God and we have our concepts of fairness or what we think God should have done or ought to do or owes us, realize who it is we're talking about. We're talking about the Almighty One, the I Am We must know our place. Amos 3.6 Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Deuteronomy 32.39 See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Who can counsel the Lord? Who can stand and say to him, What are you doing? And this is Job's response to his wife after his wife tells him, Why don't you just curse God and die? He says, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from the Lord, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What are we saying? Are are we willing to obey God and follow God when He brings prosperity and goodness and all the things that we would want into our lives and then when things turn south where we don't really want them to go when things are hard, when sickness comes, when death comes, when loss comes, searing loss comes, are we then going to abandon the Lord and say, well, we won't follow Him anymore? Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, in summary of the book of Job, just, just take that whole story and let that be for you a big pillar in your mind with how you understand the world and how you understand evil. I mean, it's a big book. It's 42 chapters. And God has put it there to help us understand what's really going on in the world. Secondly, part of the Bible's answer to this issue, we've already touched on it, God subjected the world to come the world, rather, to futility to show the exceedingly wicked nature of sin. This is from Romans 8. That he, in hope, subjected the world to futility. And what's going on with that is if you think about what happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, no no cosmic fracture went out from the garden, right? We tend to think of sin or evil as this black mass, right? Or or this force that goes out, and it's not. The only thing that can be evil in this world is the desires and the disposition of thinking, perceiving hearts. There's There's not like a tangible thing out there that's called evil. It's our attitude, it's our heart towards God is either evil or righteous, And because of that, God's response is to curse the ground, to curse the world, to subject the earth and all creation to futility, to show us this is what sin does. You want to see the result, what it looks like to me, for your heart to be in rebellion to me? The world is now cursed, subjected to futility and decay. It's proclaiming the horrible nature of sin to us every day as we see the world fracturing and breaking and decaying and rotting around us. When you visit a friend in the hospital with cancer, when you see sickness and plague, it should make you hate sin all the more because this is what sin does. Also, this is Difficult to say. Uh, This is from Luke 13. It's from the mouth of Jesus. So I don't want to give the sense that I'm being more sensitive and careful than Jesus. But this is how he answers when tragedy happens. From Luke 13, if you remember the story, the disciples come to Jesus because they heard about a tower falling on some people and killing them randomly. And he says, do you think that you're any more righteous than them? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's Jesus. And He's pointing to tragedy, what seems random to us, and hard things happening, people dying because a tower just fell on them. And He says, look at that, and then look at your life. Do you think you're more righteous than them? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And lastly, we'll spend uh, some time here. Uh, turn to Second Peter 3. This passage has been very important to me in understanding what's going on in the world and how to understand evil and tragedy. I'll pick it up in verse 7 and I'll read to verse 13. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years are as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Do you know what would happen if God right now in this moment showed up and put a stop to every form of evil and suffering and decay in the world? It would mean nothing less than the end of the world. Are you ready? Are your neighbors ready? Are your children ready? We tend to think of ourselves as separate from the problem of evil and suffering decay, that it's out there and that evil comes and strikes us. We don't understand that it's it's us. We are the problem. We are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve who have brought Evil into this world, and the world is under the curse of sin because of us. The blood of the martyrs, according to John in the revelation to John, is crying out from under the altar in heaven, saying to God, How long will you let this go on? How long will you wait to respond and cleanse the world of evil? count it as His patience. He is patient towards you. He's basically holding off the cleansing of the world and the final end of evil and suffering because He desires more people to come to repentance. God is calling us to repent through every sorrowful thing that happens. How does he do that? It's warnings. He's also showing us the frailty of life. And he's showing us our need for him. Also, on the opposite side of that, he's showing us that what we sense when we look at the world, everyone knows that something's wrong. You can't find an honest atheist who won't even look out at the world and say, yeah, something's wrong even though they have no concept or framework to even call anything wrong. Every human being feels at some level that the world is messed up. Something's dark, something's broken out there. And the Bible is answering that, showing us that God has submitted it to futility and decay because of our sin. The gospel is the answer for that longing for some frame of reference for rightness to call all that's happening out there wrong. So, as I said, this statement in Hebrews, bringing it back to Hebrews. At present, we do not yet see everything in submission to Him. It acknowledges the objection and it also gives us direction to understand the answer are your heart and my heart sub- subjected to Jesus is your family submitted to Jesus in every way there are millions and billions of people out there who are not are not subjected to Christ so when we look at the world and we wonder why are things so chaotic and why, are, why does it seem that it's outside of His control? There, is still, there are still battle lines drawn. Those who are aligned with Christ and those who are not. Those who will submit to His kingship and those who will not. And just as an encouragement to believers before we move on, in 2 Corinthians 4:17 through18, this has been one of the most important passages in my life as I try to help others and myself through difficult times. Paul says, "For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen." For the things that are seen are transient. but the things that are unseen are eternal. So if you're not in Christ, the suffering and the difficulty and the darkness in the world is showing you a warning sign, as it were. He's calling you to repentance, saying, this is what sin does. Don't go that way. Don't rebel against Him. This is why it's here in the first place. And for you as a believer, if you're in Christ... Every difficult thing that happens to you, according to Paul in Romans 8, is being taken by God and turned to your good. And it's preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The sense is that if we did not go through the difficult things in our lives, if we didn't endure through them, that we wouldn't be ready for the magnitude of the glory that is to be revealed in us. So the author began here. He says, At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. But what do we see? Verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. This is the first time the author uses his name. He's referred to him in different ways Son of God, the one who's made higher than the angels. One who the world is submitted to and he drops his name here, his proper name at the end in a way to show significance at the end of this paragraph. In talking about him being made lower than the angels, what we need to see is that Jesus doesn't stand far off. God does not stand far off while this world suffers and languishes under the curse of sin. Jesus himself took on broken human flesh and was humiliated. The God of all things, the King of heaven, the one who could have called 10,000 angels to come to His side and fight for Him, took on frail human flesh and suffered with us. So while we don't see everything in subjection to Him, we do see Him We have the story of his life, his humility, his example lived before us. So what do you see when you look at Christ? We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He is crowned with this glory and honor, and it's kind of an indefinite reference, meaning it's all glory and honor is given to him. Jesus receives the credit and the glory and the honor. This is the point of his passion. This is why he came. Ultimately, it's about Jesus receiving glory and honor. And we all know this is true, and we feel this is true, that the one who is the hero, the one who does what's needed to be done, the one who does what no one else could do, that's the person who should receive credit. When we listen to stories or read fairy tales When we read books and there's a character who that's the person who's the real hero, that's the person who deserves the credit, but they don't in some way or people ignore them. We feel that something's wrong. We feel that an injustice has been done if someone else gets the credit or someone else gets the praise for what they did. So when he says Jesus is crowned with glory and honor, it's not just that he's crowned with glory and honor in some random way. Oh yeah, he's the Son of God. Great. It's because of the suffering of death. As we talk about suffering and evil in the world, we need to understand that God does not stand far off just watching us endure and muddle through this life. He came and suffered and died. Every tragedy of this life can be seen in one way as a warning against sin because of where sin ultimately leads, and that is the wrath of God. If you understand what God did in Christ on the cross, you begin to see that Jesus willingly endured a kind of suffering that no one who has ever lived has endured. We see God's wrath in the Old Testament poured out in certain ways in different places. He calls it His wrath that breaks out against the Israelites when they sin and worship the idol. But then Paul says in Acts 17, in former times, God overlooked. So there's a sense in the Bible that all the wrath that we see God pouring out against sin in the Old Testament is in a sense diluted. That it's halfway. It's not the full Blown, undiluted wrath of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, when He was nailed to the cross, broken, it wasn't just the physical suffering of death that made that such a terrible thing. He drank the cup of God's wrath, poured out, undiluted. There aren't words I can use to express the degree of that suffering. Jesus does not stand idly by while we go through this life suffering and enduring evil. He comes and he drinks it to the full so that you don't have to. So this is the offer when when you think about evil, when you think about suffering in your life, God's answer to that is look at the cross. If you have a problem with how God has orchestrated the events in your life and how things have unfolded, look what he did to his son for your sake. And for many people, that's not enough. And I don't know what I can do for you to help you to see it as enough. That you can see God's loving and good purposes in your life, that everything, every difficult, hard terrible thing that has happened in your life is ultimately going to be used for your good. Because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath in your place. That's the only way that could happen. And there's no wrath left for you because he walked out of the tomb. Trusting in Jesus and embracing what he did on the cross means that there's no more wrath left for you. Becoming a Christian and repentance is very much being able to look at the cross and agree with God about it. What the cross says about you is that we were this bad for God to show up and put an end to all suffering and evil wouldn't just mean the end of the world as I said earlier. It would mean that that would happen to all of us because that's what we deserved. And it would never end. So in dealing with difficulty and suffering, when we look at the cross, we understand that God is saying, this is how bad you were. This is what you deserved. And I put myself, my son, forward as propitiation or the wrath removing sacrifice in your place so you wouldn't have to endure wrath. So don't stumble over this. Some of you don't think, some of you in your heart of hearts, you may not think that you deserve that. You may think it's an overreaction on God's part. That that is what our sin merits. And if that's where you are, only the Holy Spirit can bring you to a place where you understand that our sin earns that. And I've talked to those people. They can't embrace the idea that sin merits God's wrath. They think God's overreacting. They think He's capricious. That He's just angry. But realize they don't go the second step that even though that is what God requires for sin, He put His Son forward to die and to drink that cup of wrath so you wouldn't have to. Look at the cross and agree with God. So Jesus, through suffering, humiliation, and tasting death for everyone, saving a people for God by the grace of God, earns the right to be the ruler of the world to come and the world today, being crowned with glory and honor, exalted over all creation, even the angels. So a few points in application. One, see the world this way. I'm just pleading with you. It will save you much heartache, and will posture your heart to see and feel and rejoice in God's goodness, even in the face of great difficulty. Second is to see your suffering this way, that He's preparing you for an eternal weight of glory if you're a believer, or He's calling you to repentance if you're an unbeliever, if you don't trust in Him. Also, understand that time is short even if it's a thousand years from now when Christ returns, for each of us individually, time is short. Are you ready? Are you ready for that day that Peter talks about in 2 Peter 3? So that flows into the next point. Repent and help others repent. Repent. This delaying of the final judgment is giving us time so that more would come to repentance. Even so, as Peter says at the end of that text, that we should be yearning for and hastening the coming of the Lord as we go out and tell others about Him. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that the Bible is honest. It doesn't leave us scratching our heads about the difficult questions of life. If the answer is not just to say, well, just clinch our fists and believe. And have faith and don't use your brains. I pray that we would take seriously what Your Word says. We would understand what you're doing in the world and doing in our lives that we would look to you for strength and we would look to the cross. If anyone in this room has not yet looked to the cross and agreed with God, that that is what it took to save me. And this is what God is doing to bring me to himself. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. We would confess our sins and ask Jesus to be Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.